0: Second John, and I'm going to read the whole book. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you that it was written for our edification. And I pray, Father, that as I give an exposition, that you would be pleased to uh, cause this word to become more meaningful to us, that we would understand it, that we would love it, that we would seek to live it out. I just pray that you would anoint my lips and anoint our ears and enable us, Father, to be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been looking at the foundational princi- principles that make our church unique and that uh, really drive our church's vision, and I would have to think that way up there would be the... Uh, idea, the philosophy that we have of the family and its relationship in the church, I think that's one of the things that make us uh, look different. In fact, (coughs) it is so different from the way most churches operate that my guess is that what I consider to be one of our most um, appealing features that we're a family-integrated church is many times looked over by those who are shopping for a church elsewhere, because our philosophy of the family means that we don't and we won't provide some of the things that they're going to be shopping for. Okay, when people are shopping for a church, many times they've got this checklist of things that they will come and they'll ask, you have this, you have this, you have that. My is, no, no, no. <laughs> Sometimes they'll throw an explanation in. But they're looking for a plethora of programs that they can attend, that they can send their children to, Bible studies geared to various age groups, age-segregated Sunday school, well-staffed nursery, you know, and the list goes on. And I've got no problem with people shopping around for churches. I think the, the state of the church is, you know, sad enough that I think people do sometimes have to shop. But what I want to point out is that programs are not the only commodities that we need to worry about, that we need to be thinking about. Um, the, the whole aspect of the relationship of family to church and jurisdictional powers, I think, is something we need to think about as well. Steve Schlissel very perceptibly said, Power is a commodity subject to the law of scarcity. There's just so much to go around. Find an undue concentration of power in one institution, and you'll likely discover it was obtained at the expense of another. Sometimes it's at the expense of the church. Sometimes it's at the expense of the family. And you can just think about the state just as an illustration. People don't like the fact that the state has had more and more power and taking more power and influence and jurisdiction away from the family, but they fail to realize they are the ones who made the state this way because they have been constantly shopping for more and more programs that the state uh, can give. They want the state to be all things to all people by way of programs, but they want to maintain their own freedoms, their own powers, their own jurisdictional rights, and you can't have it both ways. R.J. Rushdooney said so well, the stronger a man makes the state, the weaker he makes himself. And in the same way, the more expectations that people have of churches to provide youth pastors and youth programs and age-segregated influences, the more power and the more influence that the church is taking away, poaching away from the family itself. And I think there are some churches where youth pastors have more influence upon the children than the fathers themselves do. Sad to say, I think that is true. And on the other hand, Schlissel has pointed out, that the more the church restricts itself, and by the way, I'm going to be agreeing with Schlissel and also having some disagreements, uh, but... um, Uh, He points out that the more the church restricts itself to the jurisdictional areas that God has given to it, and the more the church strengthens the family, strengthens the leadership of the fathers, the more healthy the church itself is going to become over the long haul. And so today I want to look at 2 John to establish the limits of church authority, the relationship of family to church, what makes for a strong family, and even when the father is not there what makes for a strong family. And I think uh, since we're living in a culture when by far the majority of families are families that are broken, families that don't have a father, that uh, I wanted to pick a passage that did not have a whole ideal family to look at. Initially I was looking at Je- Genesis 17 and Genesis 2 and I thought, you know, Second John, has all of these principles, we could do a topical sermon where we bring all kinds of principles in, but I want to just stick to this text here and demonstrate how even where a father is not present, the principles that we hold up as ideals are present in the family. And uh, the family here is definitely not ideal, Uh, no father present, they're not walking in, in love, at least some of the children are not, some of them are in rebellion. Now that assumes, of course, that you believe that this book is written to the family and there's debate on that. Um, I've got some commentaries, Uh, I. Howard Marshall, F.F. Bruce, believe that the lady in verse one that's referred to there, the elect lady is a reference to the church as being the bride of Christ and uh, it's a figurative reference. And so, if that is true, you're going to interpret this book in a totally different way relative to the powers that the church has rather than the powers that the family has. So, I think it is important that we settle this issue. Who is this book being addressed to? Uh, There's by far the most commentaries that have been written over the last 2,000 years. Uh, All of the older commentaries, there are several modern commentaries, and yours truly your pastor take this as a literal a letter to a literal woman who has a family perhaps she has been widowed we are not uh, told but it's describing the joys and the challenges of a covenant home and there are a number of arguments that could be given i've summarized four of them uh, for you in your uh, outline there first of all if the lady of verse one is the bride of christ like marshall and bruce say then who is her sister in verse 12 okay uh I, I think personally that's a fatal blow to the bride view how can the bride of christ have a sister now if the answer is well it's not the bride as a whole this is a local church and the local church can be considered as a bride and the other the other local church that is being referred to her sister would be another bride of christ it really makes for awkward symbology Uh, Because in the Old Testament, you weren't to take a sister as a rival to her, you know, two wives from the same family as a rival, and polygamy was not the ideal. So even if it was possible, it would be very awkward, but my point is that you don't find the imagery of a bride applied just to the local church. It's connectional. It's the whole bride that is the, it's the whole church that is the bride of Christ, and um... That is uh, spoken of as the the mother mother of us all now on the literal view the sister is very easily accounted for It's a very literal sister her children are her her uh, nephews and nieces secondly there are strong parallels between 2nd John and the language of 3rd John and everybody agrees that 3rd John was a personal letter that was written to an individual in his family And so I want you to notice some of the parallels in language that you find between these. I think the burden of proof lies on those, since the language is so strong, on demonstrating that this is written to the church figuratively. And the arguments that are put forward, there's absolutely nothing that cannot easily be explained. I think by far the strongest arguments that this is a literal family. Okay, let's look at a few examples. If you look at 2 John, verse 2, he says, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not, oh yeah, whom I love in truth. We'll just stop there. And look at Third John, verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Almost identical language. Look at verses 12 through 13 of Second John. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Uh, look at Third John, verses 13 and 14. I had many things to write But I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Almost identical language. If you look at 2 John verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. You'll see similar language in 3 John 4. Actually, if you go through the book and you look at the style of language that is being used. I think there is a strong presumption that it's the kind of audience in Second John that Third John is being written to. And if you want another book that you can compare, look at Paul's personal letter to Philemon and his family, and you'll see a similar thing. It's a style of writing personal letters. Thirdly, John plans to visit this person, speak face-to-face in verse 12, and you look at the commentator's. And, and and they say, well that's a reference to a personal visit by by Paul to that family. Well if it means that there, why can't it mean it in Second John? Fourth, the elect lady is said to own a house in verse ten, to extend hospitality in that home. He doesn't say, If anyone comes to your assembly, does not bring this doctrine, don't receive him into your assembly nor greet him. He says, Don't receive him into your house, okay? And there are several other uh arguments that could be given historical, grammatical, and cultural. Uh, That upholds the the older view and there are still modern commentators that hold to this view as well That this was a family now when you once are convinced of that fact when you once grasp the fact This is being addressed to a family the whole book opens up in a new way There's just such rich applications to to family life her home is a model home, but it's not an ideal home She's probably widowed some of her children Are walking in the truth which implies what (laughs) some of them are not right they're walking in rebellion to the truth some of them are are not walking in love they're not loving one another he says they're not keeping the commandments of God and so we're going to be looking uh, first of all I think at this whole idea of a family integrated church what is the relationship of church government to family government and then next week we're going to go on to look at some of the specifics of why that is the most healthy relationship for the family. And there's so many controversies swirling around over this relationship of uh, church and, and family. I just think it's important that we devote an entire sermon to uh, jurisdiction. So basically, this sermon is an introduction. Okay, it's going to give an overview of the book. It's going to try to show the jurisdictional issues. Then we're going to get into the nitty-gritty next week. Now, there are two extremes to avoid on this question. The first extreme seems to put all authority in heaven and on earth in the family. And the other extreme seems to put all authority in heaven and on earth in the church. Obviously, it's not quite that bad, not all authority, but they seem to really centralize authority in one or the other. And I want you to listen to these extreme statements. Here's a statement from somebody who makes the church the all-important government. He's writing to a 20-year-old in college. And uh, this Reformed writer says, the church has more authority over you than your father. I hope you have a problem with that. Church has more authority over you than your father. He goes on to say, the father's authority is derived from the church, seeing as he is under the authority of the elders. Now, right off the bat, before I continue to quote from this guy, I want you to see that he has the exact opposite philosophy of what we have in our philosophy documents. Uh, our, Our documents say that the family retains to itself all authority, all powers that are not explicitly given by the scriptures to either the church or to the state. Okay, so we call it the regulative principle of government. The Westminster Assembly held to this very strongly. They hadn't worked out all the ramifications, but... If you read some of their supplemental documents, you can see when they're arguing in terms of governmental authority and church authority family, very strongly uh, uh, held position. Anyway, this man says the church retains all authority that has not been given by the scripture to the uh, family or to the state. And fascinatingly, he says the father's authority is derived from the church. To me, this is abominable, absolutely abominable. He goes further and says, if I have a preference for my sons that is not a scriptural mandate. So we're not talking about sin here. It's a preference. It's not a scriptural mandate. It's not a scriptural sin. Uh, It's just something that's his preference and the church does not agree with it. He says, if I have a preference for my sons that is not a scriptural mandate, my elders have every right to gently persuade me from it or even to go so far as to usurp my fatherly prerogatives. In another place, he says, if the church is Christ's body, and all institutions derive their authority from Christ, then, well, you see where I am going. Now, that's an extreme. I doubt most people would be so bold as to say, I believe this, but I am convinced that many churches act that way by the way in which they rob the authority of the family and uh, poach on the, the, the family's jurisdiction. And so, for me, this is a very important principle as follows the foundations of the church that need to be clarified. The other extreme is becoming more and more popular as well, and it acts as if all authority is vested in the family. And if the family desires, if it's a convenience issue, it can give some of that authority to the church, but it does not need to because the father, they say, would have all of the authorities to do anything that the church does, anything that the elders do. Uh, they can do they can baptize they can administer the Lord's Supper discipline excommunicate etc. I think Mary pride's husband uh, you know, takes this uh, tack and there are a number of others, but uh, Here's here's another author Who mostly I agree with his essay. This is Schlissel might as well know who it is uh, Mostly I agree with his essay, but I think he goes a little bit too far He says ordination is not the bestowal of special powers in inaccessible to the normal father in the church. Okay, in other words, there's is, there is nothing that the church does as far as, a, as being a government that the family can't do. It's exactly what he's saying. Ordination is not the bestowal of special powers inaccessible to the normal father in the church. Ministers lead as a helpful convention. A convention is something that's not mandated, okay? It's just, if it's convenient, if it helps, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. But he says, ministers lead as a helpful convention, not as a product of a command. Others might fill that office if need be. Any pious father is qualified if liturgically competent. Now, even though I see that as an extreme, I'm much closer to that position than I am to the other one, because I do see that the church has no authority unless it is explicitly granted by the scriptures. So what we're going to do is we're going to fine-tune. We're going to look at what the extremes are. We're going to be... Uh, Looking in the middle and trying to sort through what are the jurisdictional limits that each of these governments have? Uh, I See this as a problem Because it does not clearly enough articulate the jurisdictional separation of powers and there is a separation of powers Between church and state. I think it does not give to the fathers the mandate to search the scriptures themselves for what authorities they have There are authorities that uh, the parent does not have for example the parent does not have the authority to execute his children now in some cultures Parents do have that authority, right? That would be unlimited patriarchalism. So you, it, there are limits on the power. You've got to look on each of the governments. What are the limits? What are the definitions that the scriptures give? Okay, let's look at the first extreme. And this is where power is centralized either in the individual. That would be libertarianism. And there aren't very many people believe in libertarianism. I've run across a couple of books that give that. But we're not going to deal with that. So it's either the individual or it's in the family itself which would be unlimited patriarchalism and I I believe in patriarchalism but I think it needs to be thought through there are some segments of the home church movement I just finished reading a a book on the open church uh, movement uh, that has the the same thing they strenuously object to the institutional church to elders to connectionalism to church court or to discipline now there are others who say well those are okay but those are conventions that can be given or can be taken away by the the family, and there's basically almost no accountability that they would that they would uh, advocate. The biblical approach is that all governments are limited, as I mentioned earlier, the father is limited, and he he can't do some of the things that the state government can do and that there are varying jurisdictions of government. There's self-government where you have the responsibility as an individual to govern yourself at self-discipline and to govern your conscience, to govern your conduct by the Word of God. And no one else can bind your conscience with anything but the Word of God, right? God can, that's His Word that's binding it, but you have the responsibility for self-government. Then there's family government, there's church government, and then there's state government. Now, when the state engages in cradle-to-grave welfare programs, what they are doing is they are robbing individuals of self-government. There's no need for the self to uh, be involved in discipline and planning and the things involved in self-government. When parents, for that matter, do all of the thinking for their children, you know, when they're 18 and 20-year-olds, and they don't do any of the thinking themselves, they're failing to raise these children up in terms of self-government. On the other hand... When the church provides what the family was commissioned to provide, it fights against family government and is seeking to do what God says the family does best. When families have communion on their own, they are in rebellion, I believe, against church government. On the other hand, when churches fail to administer the Lord's table through the heads of households, in a sense, what they are doing is they are ignoring the shepherding role of the fathers, and that the fathers are indeed leaders in the church and so there's a balance that needs to be held here the fathers lead not outside the church but they lead within the context of the church but they do indeed lead each of the governments has its own unique jurisdictions and yet there is a relationship between them now i've run across numerous people who reject the idea that the families need to be under the authority of the elders and so the first thing i want you to notice are the first two words in this epistle Right off the bat, John calls himself the elder, not an elder, but the elder. He is her elder, and in this book, he is exercising eldership authority over her. Now, John could have written this epistle simply in his role as an apostle giving scripture, or he could have written it in any other kind of a a capacity, Uh, but he's writing to the, not to the church, he's writing to a family like Paul and Philemon, and John and Philemon, uh, Third John, here he's writing to a family, and his relationship to that family is not as the family's apostle. See apostleship really relates to church, government, and things like that. He's not writing as a, uh, in the relationship of a friend or advisor or confidant. He could have done it in that capacity as a fellow saint. Philemon was written by Paul. and That's one of the reasons it has this kind of a characteristic in terms of its style. He writes as a fellow saint. In that in that book he could have done that here but by God's inspiration John is writing from wearing the hat as it were of a church elder who has authority in her life and over the family I, I cannot imitate John's authority as an apostle or as a prophet I can't write scripture but I can imitate John in the things that are distinctive to his office as elder I think he is writing this really as a model to elders is how, to, how they ought to relate to the families that are, are, are in their congregation. And so the first error is to think that a family can be out from under the authority of the elders. A second error that is sometimes made in these circles is to think that the elders cannot preach directly to the children. Now, there is an element of truth in this. And um, What I want to do is I want to read from one Reformed author, and I'm going to agree with the first half of the statement. I'm going to disagree with the second half. The author says, the children of the church are not directly under the authority of the elders. Now, I 100% agree with that statement. That's the first half of the statement. Um, They are not directly under the authority of the elders. If there is discipline, for example, that is needed, the fathers need to be addressed so that the fathers will do the discipline. Okay, discipline is jurisdictionally the parent's prerogative. But then he goes on and he makes this wrong conclusion. He says, so long as the children reside under their father's authority, the church's approach to those children must, until their majority, be mediated by the father. Now, if I've understood him correctly, that means that I cannot in my sermon say, now, children, I want you to listen up. This is especially for you, because that would be directly to them. That would not be mediated through the father. Now, there is an element of truth in what he is saying here. There's a balance because in age-segregated teaching, the parents are absent. In fact, frequently, they're not welcome. You know, if the parents tried to go and sit in on a school class to see what was happening, they'd be kicked out. You know, they're not welcome there. That's not good. That's usurping the father's role. But in public worship, God calls for the whole family to be present and to learn. For example, Deuteronomy 31, verse 12 says, gather the people together men and women and little ones and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn. God says, I want the little ones to be gathered so that they can hear and so that they can learn from the word of God. Learn from the Levites who were the pastors in the Old Testament. Nehemiah 8, Joel 2, verse 16. There are other passages that say the same thing. Now, here's the issue. Even though there is a jurisdictional Separation, jurisdiction means what is what are the specific things I've got authority and influence over, okay? Even though there's a jurisdictional separation of church and state and family, they still are involved in each other's lives. The family is involved in each of the other two governments. I mean, what's a church? It's made up of families, right? They're involved in there, and the church is commanded to preach to the other two areas. They're not to do what the state does or what the family does, what they're uniquely commissioned to do. Is to teach and they're to teach magistrates they're to teach the ones who are under the magistrates they're to teach Fathers they're to teach the ones under them the wives the children they're to teach all and so there is a clearly direct Unmediated application. So I want you to notice in 2nd John Notice that while he recognizes her headship in the home He addresses both her that's in verses 1 4 and 5 and he addresses her children That's in verses 1 6 8 10 and 12 Okay, look at 1 In verse 1, he's addressing this letter to the lady and to her children. So he's writing to the children. In three verses, the plural you is used, addressing everyone in the family. For example, look at verse 12. Having many things to write to you, and that's the plural, to y'all, okay? I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you, plural, to you all, and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. So he's, a, he's going to be addressing the whole family. Verse 13, he transitions into the singular you. The children of your elect sister greet you. So it's not the sister of all of the people, but it's of, of her. So the situation is that uh, her nephews and nieces you know, said, Hey, Pastor John, when you write to Auntie, could you please uh, give our greetings? And he says, Sure, I'll do it. And he does so. That's the situation that's happening there. Now, the bottom line is that it is impossible for pastors and elders to avoid the influence of the word on the children. Discipline, yes, that needs to be done through the parents. John appears to be in disagreement, for example, with this woman on the way in which she is disciplining and raising her children. They're in rebellion. They're not following the commandments. They're not living in love as they ought. And he's pleading with her, do something about this. But he does not step in and he does not do the parenting for her. Okay, He does not usurp her role as a parent in the way in which he does that and we'll deal with that shortly i'm getting a little ahead of myself but i do want you to notice that just as in the old testament there was unmediated direct preaching to the children so too does the, the this elder john now where the author i quoted is correct is that the parents should be there to hear the preaching of the word that their children are receiving and i think that's what he was wanting to emphasize okay and if the parents disagree with the pastor on some point of doctrine, they need to be able to tell their children about that disagreement, you know, have roast preacher over, over lunch or something to that effect. And that's the beauty of how God has set up these different governments. They are checks and balances in each other's lives. For example, just as there is jurisdictional ability for one civil government to interpose itself. When it disagrees with maybe a legislation, you know, Nebraska can say, okay, that new law that came down from the federal government's unconstitutional, null and void, none of our citizens need to obey that law. They have the ability to do that. States have done that in the past. There are times where Congress disagrees with the Senate. There are times where the Supreme Court disagrees with Congress. In the same way, the, the parents of families do have the uh, authority to tell their children that they disagree on some point of preaching. Hopefully they'll do it respectfully, but I would say they have the duty to do it. If they believe that the pastor is preaching something that is unbiblical, they need to discuss it and say, hey kids, come over here. Let's look through the scriptures here. Here's something that pastor talked about, and we respect a lot of his teaching, but I think that he's wrong on this point, and then they give the scriptures that, because Why? We need to model to our children, there is no authority that's absolute except for the Word of God, right? And so this jurisdictional relationship, I think it's just genius. The way the Lord has set it up, there's checks and balances that God has put in place. But I think you can see it's so easy to swing from one extreme to the other extreme and fail to realize there are nuances in between that we need to define by the Scriptures. One more point. Under this first extreme is that this elder exercises authority to give commands to the family Now it's important to realize they're not arbitrary commands. <laughs> uh, the church has no authority to just give opinion Okay, the only authority I have is the as an elder is the authority of the Word of God, but This is an is an inspired letter But as a model elder even though it's an inspired letter as a model elder He appeals to the Word of God look for example at verse 5 now, I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which you have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And you can examine some of the other references are numerous commands that he, he gives. By giving teaching and commands. he's exercising rule over this family. Now, just like Paul praised the Bereans for checking everything that he said against the word of God, John praises this lady for being governed not by fear, but governed by truth. Okay, verse 1, all the way through, you know, verse 1, she knows the truth, she loves the truth. Verse 4, you know, the issue of walking in the truth. She is not to just blindly say, okay, I'm going to accept it because the pastor has said it. It's truth that governs her life. But at the same time, there is still rule, there's authority, there's accountability, the family is under the oversight of the elders. So that's the dealing with the first extreme. Let's go to the second one, which seeks to centralize power in the church. And that, too, is not a good thing. We believe that the church has zero power to enforce anything that is not explicitly said in God's Word. Okay? The only authority we have is what God has given to us. And uh, so this is definitely not a good thing. We believe in limited state government. We believe in limited church government. It does not matter that the thing that we want to be involved in is a good thing. We have to ask, am I authorized to do it? For example, we could get all kinds of commandments from the Bible uh, dealing with uh, welfare and charity, and we should we could say, uh, look, state, uh, unicameral or whoever, you need to be supplying more money for orphanages and for... Uh, Feeding the poor and all of these children who aren't getting adequate nutrition You need to be involved in that look at here's some commands in the Bible that say we ought to be involved in doing exactly that We need to say no no We need to find out who were those commands being given to the command to provide for your own is given to parents, isn't it? It's not given to the state and uh, You look at the various commands and then you find out okay It's it's addressed to that jurisdiction rather than to this particular uh, jurisdiction uh, the command for charity is given to the family first, and then to the church, they not given to the state. And so the family retains to itself all authority not explicitly given to either church or state. Now, if you remember the quote that I gave at the beginning of the sermon, there are people who take the opposite approach, they say the church has all authority unless the Bible specifically forbids the church from doing something. And there is entire denominations that have it written right out, both in worship, we hold the regulative principle of worship, we hold the regulated principle of government. I think both are important as checks and as uh, balances. And I want you to notice the limits to the exercise of John's elder power in this book. Now, obviously, he's got apostolic power beyond this, but he's writing as an elder to the home. Now, some of you may possibly disagree with this. I don't know where some of you stand. Maybe none of you do. But I've been reading enough stuff in the literature that I thought, I need to, I need to address this. Um, they say that a widowed woman must always be under the substitute authority that would be equivalent to a father or would be equivalent to a husband. Okay? Now, I think there's a balance here. Under male protection, yes. Under male substitute authority, no, not unless she needs to move back under her father. Now, obviously, she's under elder authority, just like everybody else in the congregation is, but that's church authority. That's not family authority, okay? So we're talking about two different types of authority. I believe that an elder cannot function as a father, a substitute father, or as a substitute husband in the life of a widow, okay? So this is the issue we're going to be looking at. You can evaluate whether this is biblical or not. Uh, I think to do so would destroy the family's jurisdictional separation of powers. If the elder became a substitute husband or a substitute father but took family authority as opposed to just ecclesiastical authority, there would be a destruction of the separation of powers. I think elders need to give special support and encouragement and protection and guidance and help to widows. Why? Because they're vulnerable and they need extra uh, assistance from the church. That's totally different than acting as a parent for the widow or acting as a husband for the widow. The widow is still suffering in the state of widowhood, and there isn't anything the church can do to change her suffering in that state. They can alleviate it, but as far as the fact of authority uh, structure, they, they cannot change that. And there's no indication, for example, that Paul made Lydia find a substitute authority to her former husband. Okay? Okay. Uh, she continues to run her own home. Okay, let's look at the, at the text here and see if I can demonstrate this. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, that it's written, the elder to the elect lady. Now, the Greek word for lady is kuria, which is the feminine form for kurios, which means lord or master. And you've heard the expression that the man is the king of his castle, right? And uh, that's from the word kuria in the, in the, in the Greek. But when the husband is not present, she is lord of the castle, right? She is the curia of that of that home. And uh, she continues to maintain her family's governmental status as distinct from the church. And so the, the word curia has authority connotations to it. She's an authority over something. The word elder has authority connotations to it. And so... Here is one authority structure that is speaking to another authority structure. It's the church speaking to the family, and yet there's still jurisdictional limits. We cannot say that because a, a husband has died that suddenly there is emerging a merging of family and church in that situation, that she just comes right underneath uh, the church. I don't think that that would be uh, biblical, nor would it be safe. And uh, I want you to notice further that... They are, her children are spoken uh, not of his children, but of her children, to the elect lady and her children. And yes, he loves his, her children in the truth. He's been nurturing, he's been pastoring them, and we're going to be seeing the kind of authority that he exerts in their lives, but it's not uh, family authority. So there's, there's a balance here. We see he ex- exercises authority, but he does not displace her husband's authority. Does that make sense? Exercises authority, but it's church authority. He does not displace her husband's authority. Now, the church is not a mass of individuals. Here's another implication it is covenanted families who are in relationship with one another. And the modern church, I think, has almost obliterated this distinction. Almost obliterated the family's authority within the church by mandating an age segregated breakup of the family. Or there's other ways. In the PCA, For the most part i think the pca does honor this but in the pca they allow every member to vote even if it's a young child i think that breaks up the the family's authority and structure historically presbyterians have always held there was one vote per family and the the father had died he was not present the woman would make that vote okay and so it maintains the integrity of the of the family there are some churches that place up children outside of the parents control and authority and even the wives and the husbands are often separated now here is the point the reason i picked second john if these jurisdictional powers and all of the principles that you see in genesis 17 and so many old testament passages if they are maintained in place even in a home where the husband is not present then how much more so in other homes and so I thought Second John actually turns out to be a stronger passage than some of the ones I was originally going to be, uh, going to be preaching on. Second, it's interesting to note how John exercises his power. Keep in mind, John is wearing several hats. And when, when you're looking at a pastor, you're looking at anybody else like that, you've got to realize there's multiple hats they wear. When John goes into the living room where his wife is, and he talks to his wife, he's not relating to his wife as an apostle. He's not relating to her as an elder or... Uh, As father he's relating to her as husband when he speaks to his children he takes off that hat and he wears the hat of father with respect to his children right when he's dealing with the church in terms of governmental issues he wears the hat of an apostle because he relates to them with the authority of Christ as an apostle well here in this book he is wearing the hat of an elder and so there's that jurisdictional hat he is putting on and so point number two says Though John has full magisterial power as an inspired apostle writing an inspired document, in his ecclesiastical role as elder, he still models ministerial power. Now, maybe those are terms that you're not familiar with, so I've written some definitions in the outline. This may be a stretch for some of you. If you don't understand it, don't worry about it. If you get the general drift, that's fine, but I think it's very important that I framed this issue in the language that was used ever since the Reformation. They talked about magisterial versus ministerial power. The Roman Catholic Church claimed to have magisterial power, and the Reformers said, no, you only have ministerial power. So I think it's important that we understand all of these issues without inventing new terms. We understand it in, in, in context of the debate. Okay, magisterial power. Look at the definition there means authority which is number one supreme or legislative in other words they make up the rules and there isn't anybody higher than they are second or it is an authority from which there is no right of appeal or thirdly it carries with it the weight of force now in that sense only god has magisterial power right and john who is the very mouthpiece of god if you remember our sermon on how the word of god came it did not come by the will of man at any time it was god moving and so when he writes this book it is christ speaking through him and so this book has magisterial power okay he is god's mouthpiece <coughs> but john also wears the hat of an elder in which he must rule over his charges he must care for them he must protect them etc and what i would say We need to say that the church authority cannot be magisterial for a number of reasons, the chief of which is Christ is the supreme authority and we must simply declare what Jesus has declared. Secondly, humans can be in error in understanding what Jesus declared, so there needs to be the right of appeal. Thirdly, we are limited jurisdictionally. And then fourthly, the keys of the kingdom are declarative in nature. And again, if you don't understand all of that, don't worry, but these are the defining marks I think we need to at least talk about to those of you who have studied it through. So that's magisterial power. That's the problems with it. On the other hand, ministerial power means a subordinate. A subordinate is some. here's an authority up here, and the one who's under that authority is a subordinate. So any human authority that we have is a subordinate authority. It's subordinate, it's limited, which means we don't have authority to do anything we want to do, just what has been given to us and it's delegated that's what God has specifically in his word given so it's ministerial power means subordinate, limited delegated power which seeks to declare god's judgments to the best of its ability and so when the church excommunicates somebody which is the highest form of discipline, it can't guarantee that the person is a heathen or republican, and for sure it can't turn a person into into a sinner or into a reprobate, right? It doesn't have the power uh, to, to be able to do that. What they're doing is they're saying to the best of our ability, this person is not acting like a Christian and he is being excluded from the fellowship of Christians and being treated like an unbeliever. Uh, we don't have the authority to go beyond that. When I preach, I obviously preach what I believe is the right interpretation, but I'm not infallible. I'm not Christ and so my interpretation uh is not the final interpretation the confession says god alone is the lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men i'm simply a minister of christ well let me tell you something you parents are simply ministers of christ you need to be reflecting what christ does in his word his authority that he has delegated to you and so all of us i think need to recognize we've got limited authority that we need to um understand through the scripture and the nice thing about the PCA is uh, this idea of ministerial power. It's written right into our confessional docu- documents. And I think for the most part, we have be- been, over the last ten years, getting better and more consistent in exercising ministerial rather than magisterial power. A lot of, I think we're better than almost uh, most of the other Presbyterian denominations I've looked at. So I'm very thankful, even though there's some things I criticize in the PCA, I think they're fairly good on this. Now let's look at how John models this ministerial power. he had the right to magisterial power, right? Christ speaking through him. But he models ministerial power as he wears the hat of an elder. First of all, even though he doesn't need to appeal to the Scripture as an inspired author, he must do so as an elder. He must do so. And so John appeals to Scripture throughout this book, just like any other elder would. He could have given a new commandment as an apostle. He's inspired. It's an inspired book. But modeling as an elder, he says... not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. In verse John, the last phrase there, he says, as we receive commandment from the Father, the only authority that I have as an elder is the authority of this book. And if I go beyond this book, I am stepping out of my jurisdictional rights. I have no right to be commanding uh, beyond that. Um, Schlissel, I think, even though his essay could have been improved at points. I think he does a masterful job of showing how Paul models ministerial power in in that essay. But cults, they demand submission that goes beyond ministerial power into magisterial power because they want people to believe, not because they've understood it and they've bought into it, but simply because the cult says so, right? Well, churches can go into that. And what he does in this book is he is saying... He pleads with her. He gives her scriptures. He's reasoning with her. Why? Because he wants her mind to understand it and to adapt it as being her own ethic. Okay? That's the difference between ministerial and magisterial. Magisterial says uh, you just have to have implicit faith. You know, Roman Catholics say, whether you understand it or not, you've got to believe it because we've said it. over her parental responsibilities now she did have some failures some of her children not walking in the truth as i've mentioned he tells her that an authority an elder has the authority to bring reproof to bring rebuke and say look you need to let me plead with you you need to make some changes here i'll be willing to help you i'll be willing to give you counsel but you got to bring some changes but paul does not shoo her aside and begin to take over her parental responsibilities or powers nor does he anywhere imply that the church should if that jurisdictional limit is true of John, certainly it should be true of officers today. I, I know of a church here in Omaha where the pastor lined up several of the kids and was paddling them. And I think that's ridiculous. That, the church does not have the power of the paddle. Okay, That's the parental prerogative to have the power of the paddle. But that's using the wrong kind of, uh, wrong kind of power. Okay, In verse 5, he even pleads. Now I plead with you lady. Magisterial power does not plead. Is this the way it is? You do it, right? Uh, It does not allow for the individual conscience to judge the evidence. Magisterial power stands as the highest power it dictates. It does not persuade. And so by persuading, he's exercising ministerial pastoral power. Now, people might go to the opposite extreme and say, okay, well, that means that ministerial power has no teeth and there's really nothing to church discipline. We can just ignore it. The Bible makes clear that the discipline of the church is ministerial. It's not magisterial, but boy, does it have teeth in it. When the church, for example, excommunicates a person, God steps up his discipline in that person's life if that person is elect. If he's not elect, he can just do anything that he wants, I guess. But if he's elect, he steps up uh, his discipline in that person's life. And so even though it's declarative, uh, God backs up the declarations that are given there. Uh, Christ did not say that those excommunicated are indeed uh, heathen and publicans. He says in, in Matthew 18:17, but if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a, a tax collector. So we don't have the, the authority to turn them into, but you treat them a certain way. It's a declarative statement. And John does command her to honor the discipline that he has exercised in verses 9 through 10 on these apostates. Here are people who have been cast out of the church, and he says, I don't want you welcoming these people into the home. These people are under church discipline. You ought not to to be dealing with them. Uh, But the reasoning that he uses is not that he's going to force her, but that she's going to be accountable to God. Look at verse 11. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Okay, Uh, it's um, again ministerial and PCA sees discipline as ministerial, not magisterial. So we need to be humble uh, in our approach even to discipline, see it as fallible, subject to appeal and that it cannot bind the conscience uh, on anything but the word of God. And so in point C, I summarize the balance between those two extremes this way. This book illustrates the fact that the family retains to itself all powers not explicitly given to the church and state by the scripture, but also that the family must acknowledge the powers God has granted to the church. The family is not dissolved into a mass of individuals within the congregation, it maintains its family character within the church. The church is covenanted families relating to each other in love, verses one 2 grace, mercy, peace, and truth, verse 3, mutual exhortation, verses 4 and following, and mutual accountability, verses 4 and following as well. Families need that accountability. They need the love and the support that they find in the church of Jesus Christ. When they fall down, they need the mercy, the peace, you know, that John, on behalf of the church, is speaking into that family's life. They need that encouragement. Anybody that's been a parent knows how hard it is to be a parent. I mean, there are struggles that you go through. And so here's the covenanted family. They're saying, look, here's, here's the things that I've done with my kids. I, I've had the same problems with tearing my hair out. But there's this mutual edification that goes on from family to family, the church as well in terms of authority. When people are in rebellion, they don't want to raise their children as they ought. The elders come alongside, look, look, you have no choice. You must, by God's grace, you must implement. And if it's a situation where you don't know how, here's a class that you can go to. But it's this, this, this whole area... Of uh, teaching and reproof support and encouragement service and re- receiving of service that I want to look at next week but today because I've only dealt with one passage and There are many other passages in the Bible that deal with other areas What I've done is I have photocopied a article that, that clarifies through affirmations and denials all of the relationships in a family integrated church and I would recommend that you pick it up we were it was supposed to be handed out, but you can pick it up from the back table you can also find it on visionforumministries.org. It's called A Biblical Confession for Uniting Church and Home. And I think Vision Forum Ministries, they've done a great job of analyzing the ambiguities that go into this situation and really trying to clarify uh, the issues. So I, I highly recommend that you, you pick it up uh, in the back. I think they have uh, avoided the, the extremes of elderless unaccountability of families on the one hand, or on the other hand, of um, Be Everything to Everyone churches, and they're the main ones behind this Uniting Church and Home Conferences. I think the conferences started uh, last, last year, maybe was the first one, and boy, there's some great material that they have put out. But anyway, this morning I hope you've gotten just a little bit of a feel for how we're trying to maintain in this church, maybe not totally successfully, but we're trying to maintain the balance of honoring the family as a family government, but also seeing the importance of the church. And seeing the church really as being covenanted families knit together in love, truth, and the other graces mentioned in this book. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we confess, Father, sometimes we uh, do not fully understand it. We go to one extreme or another. And I just pray that you would give the illumination of your Holy Spirit to help us to work through all of the details of what your word means, help us to be faithful for every jot and tittle of what our authority structures should be holding to. I pray that you would strengthen the families in this congregation, that you would strengthen uh, year by year this uh, church and its consistency with your word. I pray, Father, that uh, there would be a, a greater proclivity for our state to be abandoning the things that are not part of its jurisdiction. And, Father, that there would be in years to come, perhaps even within the lifetime of our children, Uh, such a state of righteousness in our society that uh, family, church, and state uh, work side by side in beautiful harmony because there is godly self-control and self-government that has been going on. Father, may you grip our hearts and may you transform us and transform the other churches of this city to your honor and to your glory. We pray in Christ's name, amen.